You're listening to the Hard Men Podcast, reclaiming biblical masculinity in a world of softness. What is going on in America with testosterone and men? That is a phenomenal question that a lot of men are asking today because of ever-dropping rates, it seems, of testosterone in men. And uh, if you're familiar at all with this subject matter, you know low T is a real problem. In today's episode, we're going to talk with John Moody. John Moody is an author. I've known John for some time. Uh, We actually were at seminary together in Louisville. And John has been really a wonderful voice for, what would you call it, homesteading, uh, sort of the natural Weston A. Price type health Um, John's been working in this arena for a long time now. He and his family have a homestead, a farm, and they're actively engaged in their community. And so it's good to talk with John. We'll talk about testosterone. We'll talk about xenoestrogens. And we'll also talk about in this episode how you can actually do things in your own environment, start ordering your existence to help combat what's going on. And uh, so not only will we talk about what's going on, Um, A lot of environmental factors, food factors that weigh in on the hormone issue, Uh, but we'll also talk about things that you can do to uh, help balance out your hormone levels. Really important issue for men. How do you get that grip strength up, lift some weights? Great. But what about our food? Um, And how do we not (laughs) introduce so much soy into our diets? There really is something to that. And so John and I are going to unpack it. In the show, we're also going to ask a a number of other interesting, I think, questions, including is technology neutral, right? John has some interesting insight into the Amish community, so we'll talk about that. Uh, Our cell phones, uh, the technology we we just unthinkingly use on an everyday basis, uh, is it neutral? And I think the answer uh, you'll be intrigued by. Uh, We're also going to talk about uh, John's recent speech, I guess not too recent, but uh, last year or so at uh, County Before Country with Michael Foster, he gave a speech titled Resistance is Fertile. Resistance is Fertile. And he points out that one of the things that people, when they were exiled, were called to do was plant gardens. And we'll talk about why that is significant, why gardens are the thing of kings, and why they are a natural resistance against tyranny and a promoter of freedom. And then finally, in this episode, we're going to talk about John's relationship with Thomas Massey. Of course, Thomas is a congressman. Uh, Thomas is really a wonderful uh, force in the state of Kentucky. He was one of the few people that was voting against increased spending and just is one of the most base dudes. John rates him on a scale of one to 10 on base scale. Thomas got a 100. So we're going to talk about this and more in this episode of the Hardman Podcast. Really appreciate John's voice again. um, He, for a long time to me, seemed extreme. You know, I don't think John has shopped at a grocery store in years. And uh, while I still buy my milk at the store, maybe that'll change after this episode. Maybe yours will too. But definitely uh, some good points that are often disregarded, especially in the Reformed community. We need to be thinking more about the human body, the food that we put in it, and our relationship with the earth. So buckle up, stay tuned, and listen in on this episode. Well, 
welcome to the Hardman Podcast. Uh, today we are joined by John Moody. John is a good friend. John, I don't know if you know this. Well, first of all, welcome to the show, but I don't know if you know this. But there was a day long, long ago when I was part of your food co-op. Did you know that? Yes. But I remember seeing your wife's name in the oh, system. Yeah. I was like, Eric. That's right. We were, this is what I don't think people realize about you, John. You're, you're like a true rebel in the best sense of the word. You've been doing this for a long time. One of the things I wanted to start off our conversation, um, you spoke at County Before Country. You've done a lot of writing. You've written about Elderberry and, and you've taught about these things at conferences. One of the things people may not realize is that food and politics do go together. They say, when you're at the dinner table, don't talk about politics. But the reality is, John, food and politics go together. So maybe explain to me and to our listeners some of the ways in which, for you, food and politics have come together. Obviously, food and politics historically, um, as far back as you read in Greco-Roman writing or in other writing, um, you know, food is a weapon. Mm. It, it's because food is something everybody needs. Uh, you know, and you see this in the Bible with um, Joseph and Egypt. You know, food is a geopolitical and a social tool, and and food is an economic tool. Um, and so, this idea that you can ignore food, which is something you generally consume three to five times a day, as being unrelated to all of these broader issues and categories, is something nobody in history ever thought until recent times, you know, even Kissinger, um, well known for his whole, you know, if you control oil, you control nations. Um, an earlier part of that, you know, Kissinger's quote is if you control food, you control people. Oh, wow. You know, so he, you know, he talks about if you control money, you control the world. If you control oil, you control nations. If you control food, you control people. Um, and so one reason I got involved in food stuff, both was uh, personal health issues that I was able to address through food, uh, but also this realization back in the mid 2000s that food is a weak point. <laughs> you know, it's a choke point. If if somebody can deny me food, um, they can basically make me do whatever they want, you know, at a societal cultural level. Yeah. And I think especially uh, the last couple of years. Um, so, you know, I've read, you know, your, your stuff, Joel Salatin, guys that you're friends with. I've been reading this for a number of years and I was kind of like, okay, yeah, they're, they're right. I agree with them. I want to have a larder. I want to do some, you know, backyard chickens, whatever. But I was like, come on guys. It's a little extreme. Don't you think um, food supplies being, you know, jeopardized, that's not going to happen. Come on. And then the reality is, John, it's like the last two years, I'm sure you've seen this and I want to ask you about it, but people, I think myself included are like, wow, I think they were actually just ahead of the curve. They saw this coming. Have you had people like come back to you and be like, John, I'm sorry, you were right. I'm going to do some homesteading. I'm going to start at least start a garden, right? Have you, have you seen this happening? Oh, it, it's been hilarious. Cause you know, there's people where when we moved out of Louisville, and they're like, you're so influential in Louisville and you can make such a big impact in the city in Louisville. And why are you moving out of the city? And now they're like, dude, they're like, help me move out of the city. Louisville <laughs> yeah. is a dystopian hellscape. Save right. me and my family. Um, 
You know, so there's been quite a few of them. And the thing is, I don't advocate everybody move out of the city. Um, cause number one, I want to buy more land. So quit driving up my land. <laughs> quit coming out here. Yeah. Um, that's exactly know, right. And you know, cause city now, you know, Keller and all of his weird elk, you know, the cities are the best. The cities are inherently good. That's a bunch of bunk. Um, and the cities aren't necessarily inherently bad. You know, it's people who are good and people who are bad and Good people in rural areas create good things and good yeah. people in urban areas can create good things. Um, but urban areas have, uh, you know, the sociology and other things show that it is harder to create good things in urban areas as population density goes up and disconnect from nature increases. Things begin to break that are hard to fix. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I I wonder, John, too, if you would talk just a little bit about you know you've you've done Michael Foster's County Before Country, um, you spoke there, but st- still sort of on this topic of politics and food and you know land and place things that people you know we're starting to see these these things are actually really powerful things. Um, but you gave a talk. It was called Resistance is Fertile, I believe, which I love. That was genius. And um, but my question is maybe. Just walk us through some of the things that you talked about. Why that for this moment? Why was that talk so important? Um, so I, I can't take much credit for the title because um, it was it was a couple months before County, before Country. And Michael texts me and he goes, I need your talk title today. And I text him back like, I don't even know what I'm talking about, Michael. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, I don't care that you know what you're talking about. He's like, I just need a title. Yeah. Um, and I was just sitting there and I think um, the pastor of our church had recently made some Star Trek quote um, in like something you put on social media, you know, so, somewhere, you know, Jerry had made a Star Trek quote. So Star Trek was bouncing her and I was just like, you know, resi- like um, like resistance is fertile. And Michael's like, I love it. It's it's amazing. Um, <laughs> and so I, I titled the talk without actually having. Um, you know, the only content I had at that time was thinking about the book of Jeremiah and the 29th chapter. Yeah. And so in Jeremiah 29, um, one of the most abused chapters of the Bible, because most people immediately go, oh, God knows the plans he has for me, plans to prosper me. Um, and the chapter starts out, you know, Jeremiah 29, from the original reader's perspective, is one of the bleakest openings in the Bible. Yeah. You know, so this is Jeremiah writing to people who are waking up in the city of Babylon sometime a few months beforehand or whatever. They watched their hometowns and their home cities be ravaged. Their brothers, husbands, fathers killed in battle. Um, they are chained together in a chain gang. They are marched across the barren ancient world and they wake up in a hostile pagan foreign country. Mm. A, you know, you know, so imagine crossing the plain. I think it was called the plain of Shinar. You know, you're, yeah. you're an Israelite. You're a 17 year old, 18 year old Israelite. You, you've lost half your family. Um, your capital city has been razed. 
and you crest a hill, and there is the greatest city in ancient history, Babylon. And this is now home. Mm. You know, that's the opening of Jeremiah 29 for these people. That They are waking up in a city where almost nobody speaks, you know, the Jewish Hebrew. Yeah. That um, They are waking up in a city that smells different, feels different, looks different. They go from being the super majority to the despised minority. Um, and, and what does God tell them to do? And Jeremiah 29 opens up uh, basically with an updated application of the creation mandate. Build houses, have kids, plant gardens, build a fertile life in the middle of this pagan culture. Um, Be the little bit of leaven that leavens the whole loaf. Be the Mm. tiny mustard seed that becomes the greatest tree. Um, you know, don't sit on your hands and whine about where you find yourself. Yeah. And also don't needlessly kick against the goads like, well, I'm going to lead a revolution against Babylon. No, be faithful in the original ways God designed you to be faithful. And that is your fertile resistance hmm. to engage in in this day and age. One of the key emphasis of the Hard Men podcast is helping men rebuild their households, which in turn will help men rebuild Christendom. One of the key ways that I've found to do this is through family worship, which is an integral part of education within the home. A great new resource from Reformation Heritage Books is the Family Worship Bible Guide, which is definitely recommended. This is meant to go hand in hand with your Bible The Family Worship Bible presents rich devotional thoughts on 1,189 chapters in the Bible, including searching questions to help promote conversation and help you as a father lead in family worship in the home. This is a great resource from Reformation Heritage Books, and you can pick up your copy at heritagebooks.org. Again, that's heritagebooks.org. Org, great resource. You can get the hardcover for just $18, so I definitely encourage you to check that out. It has four editors for this book, including Dr. Joel Beakey, who has done a phenomenal job putting this together. Would definitely encourage you to check it out if you're a father, again, to help lead with family worship. This is a fantastic resource from Reformation Heritage Books. Yeah, that's so good. And even even um, you think in the New Testament, we're told to be leaven. Well, even that is a culture cultivation type uh, phenomenon. But I, I want to unpack that just for a minute. So they're told to plant gardens. Yeah. Um, I think as moderns today, we tend to read that and they're like, well, metaphorically plant gardens, not like actual gardens in your actual real backyard. And certainly, John, I mean, we don't need to do that today, right? So why do you think God told them to plant gardens and how would that apply? apply to us today. I obviously I think that it it does apply, but why do you think? Yeah. Well, one reason is because of the the clear connection to both Genesis chapter 1 and to the tabernacle. Uh you know, the, the tabernacle was a garden on wheels basically. Um right. you know, Brian, your pastor has talked about this some. Um, yeah. You know, so 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 there's this connection 
you know, this this thread um, of gardening that kind of is, is one of the um, threads that God sowed from Genesis to Revelation. Um, so there's, there's obviously that kind of like larger theological framework that God is reminding them of that, you know, they are a garden people. They are a hmm. steward people who, whether they're entrusted with little or entrusted with much, they are to steward that well for God's glory. Hmm. Uh, you know, one of the practical things about a garden is a garden has always been associated with a measure of independence and kingliness. Um, you know, so in the ancient world, um, who were gardeners in the ancient world? Yeah, they were kings. They're kings. Uh, you know, so why does Ahab want that orchard so badly? Uh, we, we often miss this in the, you know, we just think Ahab's bad. And we think, well, Ahab is bad because he wants this vineyard. But, but partly, you know, um, in the Ahab narrative, one of the reasons he wants the vineyard so badly is because that represents the kingship that he doesn't actually have. He, he wants the appearance mm. of kingliness without the substance. Wow, that's amazing. I, I never thought about that. And really, it goes back to the garden, too. I mean, so if you follow this theology throughout the, the totality of Scripture, it, you, you have man kicked out of a garden. And man on his way back to a garden through Christ. Yeah. But the new temple is really this, this garden scene, even the way that the temple is designed and all yeah. the fixtures and everything that's in there. It's, you know, the lampstand is, you know, almond and, you know, it, yeah. it's all plant, you know, uh, metaphor, picture, symbolism, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, going back to a garden, be, wanting to be the king in the garden. Um, but it's, it's also interesting, too, what you're talking about, that gardens are it's a sense of in the right way of independence of self-sustainability. Um, but it's also when you, when you think about it, like plant a garden here, start a family. It, it seems like you could translate that as be in this place for the long haul, yeah. like really invest in this place because gardens are not like, Hey, go to the store, buy it. And then tomorrow throw it away. Like you really, especially if you're talking about fruit trees, right? They take a long time to actually produce fruit once they're planted. So maybe talk to that aspect of what does that, that teach us about what we need to be doing right now in terms of, yeah, start a garden, but also like investing in local places. Well, it, I've always loved um, gardening and farming has always been associated with an act of faith mm. B because yeah. you plant seeds. You don't know how they germinate. You, 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 and you obviously see this in Paul's letter in Corinthians. You yeah. Know, like you, you, you're dependent on somebody sending water. You're dependent on somebody sending sunlight. Um, you, you know, so there's, uh, you know, so gardening. And, and again, this is why in the New Testament, so much of garden imagery is used of the imagery of faith. That's um, right. You know, because gardening is an act of faith. You can't force plants to grow. Um, you know, I've tried, it doesn't, I can't, I can go out there and play guitar to them. I can whisper sweet nothings to them. It doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't um, work. You know, but, but a garden requires, um, attention and a garden does tie you to a specific location. You know, people who raise animals and have gardens are not jetting away on the weekend, um, 
you know, to catch the newest play in New York or to do this or that in some other far fung place. Um, so gardens very much are a, you're going to be here a while and, and learn to actually love and appreciate where you are rather than mentally locating yourself um, somewhere other than your actual home. Yeah, that's so big. It it, it kind of connects to another thing that I've often asked. Um, I, I was tweeting this today, thinking about it as I was preparing to talk to you um, and thinking through a lot of the things that we've talked about in the past. But uh, so I tweeted this. I said, the church today is functionally Gnostic. Case in point, little to no attention in teaching or practice is spent on the health of bodies. We're obese. We're heavily medicated. We're depressed and you'll almost never hear anything about proper bodily care. So these things really go together. Like the Gnosticism, it it may be that we're downplaying the physical realities of a garden or tied to that is the garden is like fueling what we put in our bodies and we don't care about either one of those things. So one of the things I want to ask you is, first of all, do do you see this happening with the Gnosticism, whether it's a garden or physical bodies? Do you see that happening? And I would say even in a lot of like reformed ish circles. Oh, it's, you know, I actually commented on your Facebook post of that. And I said, you know, even worse is a lot of churches, if you speak to these things, um, you will be treated as a threat. Yes. You know, if you say, hey, you know, maybe a Pizza Hut potluck for a church where 50% of the members are overweight isn't actually all that God glorifying. Well, that was really insensitive of you, John. How dare you? Yeah, I'm known as an incredibly sensitive <laughs> chap, aren't I? <laughs> yes. um, it's probably why we get along. So, and, and so it's it's a really difficult issue because yeah, um, the churches, by and large, um, and especially the Southern Baptist side of the church. Um, I think the Presbyterian side, because they're socioeconomically a little better, tend to be a little bit physically health-wise better because those correlate a little bit. Um, but but it's amazing to me to, how can you serve your wife in your church if you cannot touch your toes? Yeah. You know, it's just... Um, or see them. Yeah. You know, and so um, it, it's an issue that that really ruffles feathers. But but it's one I've been speaking about since, you know, I was in seminary and what totally propelled me into this unexpected world. Because for me, I'm the last, you know, my family thinks I was abducted by space alien. Because that's the only way they can explain <laughs> yeah. where I'm at in life compared to where I was as a child and in high school. Um, you know, but I was in seminary. I came down with duodenal ulcers. I got below 120 pounds. Um, oh, I, bas- wow. I basically almost died while I was in seminary. You know, I had enough antibiotics as a kid to be my own CAFO animal feeding operation. <laughs> um, you know, I had seasonal allergies so bad. Benadryl sent me free stock options. Um, oh, it was a patronage boy. dividend. And my dentist, when I was a child, started getting warning letters from the EPA saying that he needed drilling permits uh, to do operations in my mouth. You know, so like I I get to seminary and nobody had ever spoken with me about food. Nobody all my life ever said, hey, John, you know, maybe putting white sugar 
on your Cheerios is not good for you. You know, um, nobody had ever. So I get a seminary, I get duodenal ulcers. And I finally had a professor who just said to me, you know, he goes, um, you really should consider how you. And I also got exposed to Francis Schaeffer. Um, oh, and, yeah. And Schaeffer's non-Gnostic view of reality. Hmm. Because if there's one thing you can say of Schaefer, he is, if you read him rightly, he's a vaccine against Gnostic Christian thinking. So like what, I, I don't want to interrupt that story, but like what, what were you reading of Francis Schaefer's? Well, I read everything. I read okay. the trilogy. Um, okay. And then I read, you know, Pollution and the Death of Man. Um, it, I, I basically read all of Schaefer's works. Um, oh, that's great. And at one point I went through. You know, Schaefer was the first, he has a line that really stuck out to me because he goes, you know, um, what does it say to people when you hand them a styrofoam or plastic cup with water in it? Because he was talking on aesthetics in the church. Yeah. Um, you know, and, you know, like, what does it say to people when you fill your house with fake flowers and you try and talk with them about a real living God and you filled mm. all of your reality with phony fake knockoffs. Um, you know, you live in a synthetic world and you try and convince people of the value of real things. Yeah. That's really interesting. So did you like at that point, did you, you change your diet? What did you, Oh yeah, we changed everything. Um, you know, we, Jessica was, we were dating at the time then she became my fiance and then we got married. And I always joke, like, when we went down the rabbit hole, when we hit the bottom, we broke out shovels. <laughs> uh, you know, so, so we're now yeah. that really crazy home birthing, infant potty training. Um, you know, we have six kids. They've lived 60 years. Uh, we've still never needed antibiotics for any of our kids. You know, we, we, we went all... And it was crazy, though, because... Uh, my doctor had said to me, you know, he's like, there is no way to heal this condition. Just something you're going to struggle with yeah. the rest of your life. Went back to him like eight, nine months later. I'm like, rescope me. I want a clean bill of health. And let me tell you how you can actually help your patients apart from pills and procedures. Yeah. And so did you, did you have a good clean bill of health after that? Oh yeah. Like my seat, you know, I live in the Ohio river Valley, one of the five worst places. It's in terrible. The nation. Yeah. I have no seasonal allergies. What? Um, yeah. And you know, I, I do judo and jujitsu. I'm 43 years old and I routinely have guys who are a decade or more younger than me who comment on that. I'm fitter than them. And most of their friends. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's ridiculous. The, the difference well, right living, right eating makes to actually being able to then fully serve your family, fully serve your community, fully serve your church. Yeah. It's really huge too. And, and I think about the food thing. So I think the last two years, um, we've talked to a lot of doctors and some of the other work that I've done in the media industry. Um, and one of the things that we found was like, there was actually intentionality to not treat people, um, which seems crazy, but like, they're like, no, this actually benefits us if more people die um, because we got to save grandma, right? So let all these people die. And so 
like, I think a lot of people started to think about things like natural health, mm-hmm. things like what can I control in this equation? Um, in, in your story about, um, you know, it's really about like, Hey, we'll just prescribe you some pills, but don't change anything you're doing. Um, it reminded me of a story when I was in college. Um, I had like zero basis. I was like you, you know, uh, my mom used to make me like uh, a, a health shake after I would like get home from baseball practice and she'd put in like a scoop of vanilla ice cream and like four cups of grape juice and then a cup of sugar. Yeah. Like this would make you big and strong. Um, so like I was clueless. I, I literally knew nothing about health and um, I'm five, eight and I went to my first year of college and I came back and I was like 210 pounds, which is morbidly obese for that size. Yeah. And I went to the doctor and uh, my general practitioner, you know, whatever. And I went there and they took my cholesterol and they were like, my God, son, you could die tomorrow. (laughs) And so I said to the guy, I said, well, should I exercise or should I change my diet? And he goes, no, we'll just give you a Lipitor prescription. And so here I am, I'm 18 years old and they're putting me on Lipitor, which is, you know, the long term of that drug. I don't know if you know this, but it's like major liver function problems and they're putting people on it and they're not actually sure it might actually create more plaque in your arteries and you might die sooner. It's like, this, this is horrible. So I, at that point, John, I, I kind of just said to myself, I was like, you know what? The only thing I can control right now is like what food I put in my body and exercise. So I I went to the library. The first thing I found that seemed kind of moderately decent uh, was body for life by Bill Phillips. And the one thing about the book was they were really into this low fat stuff at the time, which was just stupid. But the one thing that I realized about it was basically like, you know, let's try and eat some like whole grains and like real food and don't buy processed things. And don't the the one thing he said in there, he was like, somebody asked him like, when should you eat fast food? And he was like, um, never just in general, never. So I was like reading this. I'm like, okay. So, uh, I, I do this for a year. It's supposed to be a 12 week program. I do it for a year. I lost, I think, 70 pounds. Nice. And I went to the doctor. And by the way, the doctor had told me during this time, he said, listen, Eric, there's no amount of diet or exercise that can take care of this massive of a bad blood work problem. Like, this has got to be genetic. It's got to be hereditary. Nothing you can do. Just take these pills. I went back and I said, do my blood work. Same thing you, you know, I want a clean bill of health. Do my blood work. And he, I, we got the blood work back and he was like, I, I, this doesn't make sense. He's like, your cholesterol dropped like 200 points. He's like, that's not even possible. Yeah. And I said, well, yes, it is possible because we just did it. But from that point forward, when I was thinking about physical bodies and health, I, I, it really brought me to the realization that we have so much more control, power, influence over just simple things like food and exercise. But that's like the last thing that people think about. So you know, tie it to pastoral counseling. Um, you know, when I was in seminary, um, <laughs> you know, even good guys, they were like, listen, you know, part of the counseling regimen has to be, um, someone who can prescribe depression medications and all yeah. these things. And I remember Martin Lloyd Jones saying this cause he was a medical doctor. And he said like 99% of the problems we saw were like, dude, get exercise, stop eating so much food, stop drinking so much alcohol, move your body, get sunlight, go to church like work on your marriage. Um, why? So all of that to say, like why in our culture 
and particularly reform culture, when we should have like a better understanding of the body, why do you think we've gotten to this point where we don't even think about, well, ah, maybe it matters what I put in my body. Maybe we should go, instead of putting drugs in our body, maybe we should actually do the hard work. And maybe that's what it is. It's just harder, but I want to get your thoughts on that. Well, I think you've hit on it. And um, this, this comes out of theological currents yeah. in, in the late 1800s and early 1900s um, where, you know, things were sundered. Mm. Um, you know, th- things that God sewed together got broke apart. You know, yeah. part of this was... Um, during the fundamentalist movement, uh, you know, in terms of when the church was beginning to split over social gospel versus, you know, Bible and errancy versus this, um, the the church let the liberal side claim mm. a lot of the practical, you know, because they're saying you, you you all have abandoned the foundation for the fruit. Yeah. And so we're going to claim the foundation and we're going to walk away from there being any practical fruit to this anymore. Um, and so there was some of that kind of thing going on. And, and then there was the, um, you know, another current, you know, basically was in the, in the, you know, industrial revolution culminated with better living through chemistry. <laughs> was that um, DuPont? I think. Yeah, well, DuPont DuPont eventually used the slogan, but if you go back and read a lot of the literature and the cult, you know, how did you get women to quit breastfeeding their babies and instead Mm. have to go to a store and buy a Mylar sealed package of strange smelling and looking stuff than give their baby the thing that God designed their body to give their baby? How do you convince people to do something so stupid? Yeah. You know, like, obviously, again, you know, be sensitive. There are women have milk supply issues. Sure. You know, obviously, but but let's not caveat it to death and just say, by and large, buying milk for your children when your wife produces it. And that is what God designed her to do. It is one of the glorious and good things that God designed. Like, how do you convince an entire nation by and large, the church completely submitted to a Darwinian secular authority mm. when it came to how they viewed all of creation. Um, I've yes. said this for years. I've gotten yelled at for it. But 95% of evangelical Christians in America are practical Darwinian evolutionists when yes. it comes to how they view creation and everything inside of creation. They, 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 you know, so we, we argue against Darwinian evolution in terms of apologetics and Bible, but in, but in how we order our lives, how we order our dinner tables, how we handle health issues, we're no different than the evolutionists. Rot, taut, and barrel. You know, it's just... Um, and, and I think part of that is just, you know, the, the, the church would just swept along wholesale in, in these cultural currents and other things um, with no, no at all, you know, biblical theology to even engage with these things. 
Yeah, it brings up a really interesting question too, because um, you know it gets to food and bodies. Um, these these things are really sensitive issues for people, um, we, which would lead me to believe like we we sort of like treat them almost religiously. I've even heard like secular people call it food zealotry. Yeah. Um, on either side, you know, and you go to the left coast. I have a lot of friends who are like you know, San Francisco, Seattle foodies, and like they treat their kombucha like it is holy water. Yeah. Um, so on the one side, there's definitely like this pagan, weird, religious attachment to food. And in the scriptures, you know, Paul says like food is not going to save you. Yes. Right. So like asceticism and, and, and weird food diets and stuff like that. So on the one hand, we want to be like, yes and amen. You know, like your kombucha water won't save you. You're not justified by kombucha water or you know, mushroom anything, or, you know, you name it, whatever your little pet food thing is, you're not saved by that. Um, but one of the things that I do on this show is I, I like to poke things in the eye. Uh-huh. And so I wonder if you would venture with me in the eye poking, and this is going to be in the camp. So one of the things that I've noticed is I really appreciate like Doug Wilson on food Catholic. Um, there's, there's good stuff in there, like in his book, like let's not make food its own religion and blah, blah, blah. But Doug will say things like, but a Cheeto is just as glorious. I, I don't know. I, I want to be fair here. I don't know if that's how he would word it, but like almost as if like there's nothing inherently better about a glass of raw milk than a Cheeto to which I would say like just from a nutritional standpoint, I, I would tend to want to do some pushback. <laughs> and I don't know if you see it the same way, but it seems like something in that camp is a little too like, yeah, but our bodies matter and we should you know think a lot about food too. So, so I wonder how you might balance it. Do you yeah. see this issue? Well, if we're eye poking, I'm going to do this gently and knowing I love Doug. Um, but I generally don't take food advice from somebody who is clearly morbidly obese. Yes. Um, you know, nothing against Doug. You know, it's there's an issue there. and Maybe it's not related to his dietary and lifestyle choices. I don't know Doug well enough to know. Um. But at the very least, you know, I, I wish Doug would have um, he, he's a little bit beyond his uh, area of expertise when he wanders off into food and farming issues. And, and again, I understand partly that he's in a college town and liberal people, um, you know, are all, you know, everybody's looking for salvation. And it's true. A lot of liberal people look for salvation through food. Or they look for salvation through a vaccine or, you know, yeah, people are. And the only place we're going to find salvation is Christ. Um, But that doesn't mean that food is completely neutral or completely arbitrary. You know, it's it's not as if um, your food choices are arbitrary in terms of their impact on you and your impact on others. I think that's a really good point. Do you think the the issue with a lot of, you know, the stuff we're talking about, because again, just to repeat this, but like, these are in the camp discussions. Um, there are things that we have to talk about. I also think maybe some of it is sort of the boomer mentality of like, I just think a lot of our, our parents' generation didn't necessarily think about those issues in the same way. Mm-hmm. So anytime that you talk, Francis Schaefer, I read his book on the environment and um, anytime that like in Christian camps, you talk about, you know, we should be wise stewards of the earth. People are like, what are you, a leftist tree hugger? Exactly. Like, yeah, no, we, we don't want to go to that extreme, but we really should think about things like, 
well, I don't know, gee, in the last two years, I'm, I'm not sure that we can say all medical technology is neutral or all food technology is neutral. There, at some level, and this is what I'm getting at, at some level, it seems like we have to have a criteria, principles, a grid to evaluate these things. Yeah. Uh, would you agree with that? Yeah. Well, and you know, for Doug, just to tie off the Doug side of this. Yeah. Doug's eschatology has always deeply colored his view of agriculture and view of food. Um, and so I think his post-millennialism, cause especially, you know, years ago, people would send me anytime he wrote a blog post about food and they'd be like, will you write a refutation of this? And I'm like, no, I'm like, but, but this is Doug's eschatology run amok again. Yeah. Unpack that for me. I'm, I'm just curious. I mean, I, I would call myself post mill. I, I, I haven't connected the dots, I guess, in terms of how it would impact food. Yeah, you know, there's this one article maybe back in 2009 or 2008 um, where he was talking, I think he was talking about lab-grown meat. And, you know, because we, and he's like, we should celebrate lab-grown meat because in the new heavens and new earth, there's no more killing of animals. What, Doug? I didn't know he said that, yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. He, he, okay. He, he's a number of times, again, it's been like a decade since I read some of these. He a number of times, though, rooted some of his views on agriculture and food in his eschatologic, you know, progress. Interesting. You know, this okay. Post, this post-millennial optimism, this post-millennial progress, which somebody like me and Joel Salatin would say the last 60 years are actually an example of regress, not progress. Well, it's, it's interesting too, because, um, you know, bear with me, this is all connected, but I was listening to Elon Musk talk about uh, it's not nuclear holocaust. He said the most dangerous thing on the planet right now in the fourth industrial revolution is AI. And <laughs> one of the things, though, that that I found interesting is that for all that AI is and all that technology can do, one of the things I've disagreed is, is Doug has said technology is neutral. Yeah. And, and I don't think that, especially when certain technologies were designed to, A, rewire your brain, screw up human interactions, et cetera. Like, I don't think Snapchat's neutral. Yeah, birth control is clearly not neutral, but no. it's a technology. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so, so I look at that, but then I also look at, you know, my readings with, um, you know, whether it's Rory Groves or it's Joel Salatin or yourself, um, Wendell Berry. I'm reading these things and I'm realizing, you know, God was, you know, just incredibly wise, I think, in ordering the creation so that like, no matter what your technology is, like you can't cheat nature. So to like, go back to Jurassic part, right? Like <laughs> nature always wins. It always yeah. finds a way. And so like, we think we're so smart because we're creating lab meat or bug meat or whatever the thing is. And like, at the end of the day, the thing that just walks around and eats the grass in the field is actually like, that's actually good. God knew what he was yeah. doing. Um, so, I guess just speak to that issue of, you know, you brought up, but of like progress, we think of, I think this is actually an evolutionary way of thinking um, of progress, always, you know, getting a certain direction through industrialization and technology. Um, but you spoke of regress. Um, again, I just wonder if you would just connect the two industry regress, what's happened the last 50 years. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the last 50 years, we have longer life expectancies, 
but lower life quality. Mm. We have um, theoretically more disposable free time, but less healthy bodies and less connected communities. More anxiety. Yeah. And so on the one hand, you have the folks on the one side of this equation, especially a lot of the libertarian type folk who are like, Global poverty is the lowest it's ever been. You know, more people have air conditioning. Yeah, more people have air conditioning, which means they spend more time watching Netflix and less time talking to their neighbors. Yeah. Uh, You know, what really drove this home to me um, is the first time I ever flew, I was in college. And so it was my junior year of college. I flew to Colorado Uh, to go to the Focus on the Family Institute for a semester. Yeah. And I go into the airport for the first time. A friend drops me off in the airport. And, you know, I've only been a believer a couple years. And I always tried to cultivate wherever I was. I wanted to learn to talk to who was ever around me. And so over the course of my first two years of traveling, I talked to people from all over the world when I'm traveling through airports. And... You know, by about 2014, 15, think is that's about the last time I flew. You couldn't talk to anyone in an airport anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly like, right. You, you, you walk into an airport and 95% of the people, earbuds on, face in a phone, face in an... And so a, a friend of mine got rid of his iPhone recently, his smartphone. And and what made him realize his need to get rid of it, he he sent me and another friend a message and he goes, he goes, my like seven year old was trying to talk to me and I kept checking the weather mm. on my smartphone. And he, and he realized the technology was not neutral. Uh, the technology was designed to compete for your attention and your affections. Yeah, it's an ad- they built it as an advertising tool. Yeah. You know, they built it as a dopamine drip. Yep. Um, And so, uh, you know, progress is unavoidable. But as you said, especially for Christians, and therefore in a Christian society, we should have tools and metrics for evaluating technology. This is what the Amish do well, even though imperfectly. Uh, Because the Amish are not anti-technology, which is a lot of what, you know. That's what people think of it, yeah. What the Amish are is they are against technology that will harm the health of their families and the health of their communities and their independence and community-level sustainability. So, So anything they think that will undermine the unity, harmony, and coherence, cohesion of their community, they try and limit. Um, And, you know, we could say, you know, we we could spend a whole episode talking, but at least they understand that these things are not neutral, Um, that these things are forces that then we introduce to and give a foothold in our families, in our communities, in our societies, and they're forces that can act against our own best interests. 
Yeah, and I I think that's a really good point. And even with the Amish, maybe one of the lessons we learn is not that we need to like go live in a certain part of the country and make quilts and sell really nice furniture. <laughs> although that does sound kind of cool. Um, but I think one of the things you could learn from that is as Christians, we could just stop and evaluate things better, and not with the world just say, "Oh, it's new. It must be better and good, and we need it." And um, one of the things that that I found this out about was reading about the iPhone. Uh, Gene Twenge has a book. I've talked, I think, about it quite a bit on the show, but it's called iGen. And she's looking at iGen, which she's trying to be polite in the book because she's, you know, a pagan psychologist, sociologist. I'm not sure. Um, So she's not like trying to make a moral argument. But the thing is, she even says in there, she's like, look, basically, we have the most fragile, emotionally distraught, depression, suicide generation of all time. And she goes, and you know what that generation coincides with 100% coincides with is 2007, the iPhone. So the first generation ever raised on smartphones and Snapchat and Instagram and selfies and all those things from a very young age. And it has been, we haven't even had to wait 50 years, you know, like for a Pfizer study, for example. Yeah. Um, (laughs) we, we just waited a few years. That generation hit college in 2013 so that's not even 10 years ago. Um, the iPhone is not even 20 years. And we can already see, you know, like, people left Facebook and they were like, it's rewiring people's brains, man. It's, like, sick. It's twisted what's happening to us as a culture because of this. So you would think as Christians we would go, yeah, let's just look at something. Let's just evaluate something and say, has this been good for the church? Like, did pornography problems get better or worse when we put a smartphone in the hand of every single male teenager and female yeah. too? You know, did 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 it make it better that you could bring a camera into anywhere? Was that like a good thing? Um, and And of course, like, I think Doug is right in the sense of, yes, these things can be used for good purposes um, to some extent. But even then, you would like smartphones. I would say, well, you've really got to have safeguards in place. You've got to be very protective of them. You know, um, it, it's definitely people are always like, oh, you know, guns do violence in America. I was like, guns do violence. It's like, <laughs> what do smartphones do? It's probably far more damaging to people's souls and to society as a whole. So I think, yeah, getting to this point of um, evaluation, at least like critical evaluation. Um, I've always wondered too, because in sort of this like Kuiperian view of the world, we say that there's no square inch over creation that's neutral. Everything, it, you know, belongs to Christ or doesn't, et cetera. And I don't want to blur the lines here, but it's like, I think we have to kind of look at smartphones and technology at wh- whether it's, you know, again, something you hold in your hands for recreational entertainment or even looking at things like farming practices and saying, is this good? Is it good in America that we went from a country where like most of the people were doing agriculture to almost no one is knows nothing about it. And the whole thing is subsidized by the government. Is that good? Yeah. Like fundamentally, has that been good for society? And I think my answer would be no. I'm curious as you look at those things, you know, we can say it's a problem Mm -hmm. and I think you would, but as you look at those things, what can be like tangible, practical steps forward for people? Like, how do we get out of this mess practically? Yeah. Well, you know, the first thing I always tell people is to take responsibility and act as locally as possible. Mm-hmm. And the first location is yourself. You know, yeah. I, I get to choose what I eat. I get to choose where it comes from. 
I get to choose what technology I have access to and how I use it. Um, I get to choose since I'm a father and have a household. Um, I get to choose how our household is ordered, what our priorities will be. Um, so, you know, so often people, you know, they, Jordan Peterson's great about this, you know, where he always, you know, a person goes, I want to change the world. And Jordan Peterson says, great. Like, do you make your bed each morning? Yeah. Do you live a life of moral excellence? Where are you growing as a person? Because you can't manage, you know, if you can't manage yourself well, and this is so biblical, how can you be entrusted to manage other things? Right. If you, if you don't manage yourself and your household well, um, you, you know, so the first thing I always tell people is just like, take advantage of where you are. And if you need to have a solid brother come alongside of you and give you an honest take on your life. Um, I remember years ago when I lived in Louisville, um, because I, I used to do a lot of financial counseling for people because my undergraduate was a business finance major. Um, so I'd always have people wanting to talk finances with me. And a, a young dude comes to me and um, he's like, man, he's like, John, he's like, I'm just struggling financially so much. Sip, sip, sip. Um, he goes, I did, you know, I'm having trouble tithing. I'm having trouble. Sip, 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 sip. $5 coffee from the gourmet coffee place around the corner. I'm, I'm like, how, how many of those coffees do you, do you drink a week? He, he's like this. He's like, I don't know. He's like, probably get three or four of them a week. I'm like, dude, that's $1,000 a year. That's solving all of your financial problems in a single decision. Yeah. Uh, you know? A decision that's easy to overlook. Yeah. As insignificant. Um, you know, so if, if you need that kind of feedback, I always appreciate, you know, um, guys who are willing to give me honest feedback and guys who will ask me to actually give them um, honest feedback about practical stuff, you know, not the men's Bible study where it's kumbaya and let's debate disembodied theology. Yeah. But hey, um, you've seen me interact with my wife. What do you think? You've seen me interact with my kids. Um, you see how we have structured our life. What kind of feedback would you have for me? You know, knowing that different families are going to have different emphases, different things. You know, there's like our family does judo. Your kids might do baseball, um, you know. But so, but take control in your life um, to reject Gnosticism and embrace, you know, localism, being present where you actually are. Yeah, I think that's a really big thing um, on the on the side of localism too. In terms of things like, you know, chickens are big, gardens are big. Kind of where would you start with that stuff? Where would you recommend that people start if they're saying, "Hey, I want a little bit." I, I don't know you know, more, more independence, as you talked about in the food realm. Um, cause I generally tell people we, we are in seminary. Um, and people are like, I always tell cause they're like, well, if I go to whole foods, it's really expensive. And I was like, okay, listen, I was in seminary making like $9 an hour going to seminary, which for a 50% Southern Baptist discount was still insanely expensive. And we, you know, we found some ways to have 
you know, raw milk and, you know, things like that. Now, was everything that we ate like hyper expensive, the the best choice or the best thing that I would have ever wanted to eat? No. Um, but it was kind of that principle of like, well, let's let's incrementally let's try and get there. So where do you tell people to start? Oh, man. So, um, you know, I always tell people first and foremost, when when Jessica and I started this journey, we were so far from this. Um, you know, I'm eating at Wendy's. We're shopping at Sam's Club and, you know, Sam's Club and Crow. We're, you know, sale shopping, Sam's Club, Myers. Can't remember most grocery store names. It's been so long since I use a grocery store. Um, and so if we can do it, anybody can do it. And basically for Jessica and I, when we realized we wanted to build a different type of household, but I realized we had a really far way to go because um, we didn't know anything about cooking. We didn't know anything about gardening, um, just anything at all. We would sit down after we first got married and we'd choose two things a week that we were going to do. So this week um, we might try cooking a whole chicken. Because, you know, there's people, uh, we have lots of members of our buying club until they joined the buying club. They had never seen chicken apart from boneless, skinless chicken breast or frozen, already prepped chicken in a bag. Is that they not where it comes from, John? Yeah, exactly. Um, and so we chose one thing a week, one or two things a week. Um, this week, we're going to make our own cleaners. Um, Because we're getting low on the glass cleaner from the store. The $5 a bottle glass cleaner from the store that costs 13 cents to make at home. So, and and we would, and obviously when we first started, we chose low-hanging fruit that had a high return for us. Yeah. Uh, You know, that would save us money and that, that we could reinvest that savings into more incremental changes. Uh, you know, so uh, we lived in an apartment. I, I purchased a couple earth boxes, which are like a container gardening system, which are way overpriced. And you can DIY hack these yourself for a fraction of the cost. I didn't know that at the time. Um, and here I am leaving to go to seminary in the morning, moving my earth box around the courtyards of our apartment complex to make sure they get the best sun until we get home. You know, there's always small things you can do to start, you know, have a small garden. If you're allowed, have a few chickens, um, you know, do what things interest your family and, and what makes sense given where you are. Um, it might be as simple as starting walking with your wife and kids two to three times a day, break up the homeschool day, break up the work day. Uh, we're just going to take a 10 or 15 minute walk as a family and go get fresh air and see our neighbors and talk about nature. And, um, you know, th- th- there's so many small things you can do. And that's what amazed Jessica and I is if you do two things a week for two years, your life looks completely different at the end of two years. Um, but it, but it's the type of change you can actually digest and succeed at. 
Yeah, I think that's a, such a good point. Any any habit that we want to change, like just start small, start at home, start local, do one thing and do it well. Make sure you can implement that change. Um, as you're talking about food, I, I want to ask this is a hard men podcast. One of the things that always comes up uh, is testosterone. Um, uh-huh. We've seen plummeting levels of testosterone. And again, my connection with the food stuff and really I was listening, you probably know the lady's name, but she was on Joe Rogan uh-huh. and uh, she was talking about plastic. And I, I've heard this before from people like yourself. And I said, that guy's a wacko. John's a wacko. <laughs> what does he know about food and plastic? He's crazy. That's not really happening. And then, you know, we've seen this though, this lady's talking about it and we've seen it that there is something about the plastic and the way it affects estrogen levels and testosterone and all these things. But the bottom line is if you look at the last 20, 30 years, you know, grip strength in men has gone down. uh, Sexual drive has gone down. There's a lot more impotency. And again, testosterone levels are plummeting. When we, we've talked about this before, we could do a whole show on it, but um, it's not new is the first thing I would say, like you and your community, you've been talking about this for a long time. So I wonder if you would just start to unwind that onion, that ball of yarn. What is going on with testosterone in men? Oh man. So obviously there's no one single cause. Um, It's a storm of factors, you know, uh, our food supply, especially the reliance on soy, uh, you know, maybe we'll step back, talk science for a moment. Nature, uh, you know, the two dominant hormones in the human body are testosterone and estrogen. Right. And both men and women have both of these hormones. Obviously, women have way less testosterone. Men have way less estrogen. Um, In the environment and now in, in an industrialized economy that creates you know, all kinds of stuff. Um, We have an environment that is full of what are known as phytoestrogens, uh, which are plant-based estrogens, and xenoestrogens, which mean foreign estrogens. Um, So for instance, what makes a plastic bag malleable? Where a plastic bag bends Well, it's because plastic bags have a softener added to them called BPA, um, bisphenol A. Whoa, 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 whoa. So Uh, this is actually a softener. Yeah, it's a softener that makes the plastic malleable. Um, And so... Man, well, it's just crazy. And I I just want to interject. It's just crazy because, like, physically, it's actually... Like we're talking about hard men, masculinity, this, you know, being steely spined and all those things, but like your muscles being hard, it's like, it's, it's actually physically making things soft. That's what it does. Yeah. It's an additive to the plastic that, you know, so our dietary system is now overran by soy and a bunch of other foods that are highly estrogenic. Um, You know, soy baby formula, Sally Fallon of the Weston A. Price Foundation. I think they once said that like um, a bottle of soy baby formula contains like 4,000 times more estrogen than mom's milk. What? 
Um, well, and, and you really do see that, you know, this is the Alex Jones moment of the show. Remember years ago, Alex said the chemicals in the water were making the frogs gay. Yes. And then like a year or two ago, studies came out saying that the xenoestrogens in the water supplies were causing gender dysphoria in aquatic populations, vindicating Alex Jones. Like Sally Fallon and others have been talking about this issue since the 1990s, where they've said, you know, soy infant formula, um, soy based foods, um, a lot of agricultural chemicals, ha- some of them have estrogen or other damaging health properties. And then, you know, wearing synthetic fabrics, you're wearing plastic nylon synthetic fabrics that are full of these phytoestrogen chemicals. Um, And so they're, you know, they're sitting on the the largest organ of your body is your skin by weight, by surface area, by by every measure. Your skin is your body's biggest organ. Does that include like polyester? Yeah, polyesters contain some of these chemicals. Um, You know, so if that 2007, you know, lady showing the connection between iPhones and um, social dysregulation in youth is a smoking gun, the mass introduction of xenoestrogens into our environment in the industrial revolution of the fifties and sixties, where we finally got the plastic part of the, that that's when you start to see the declining sperm counts. That's when you start to see um, the declining strength levels in men. So uh, a, a strong argument can be made that the mass introduction of plastics into our environment. And, and, you know, again, like a lot of our body care products, um, the synthetic scents we wear, the makeup women's wears, the laundry detergent you're using in your machine. Tons of these contain xenoestrogen um, and other endocrine disrupting chemicals. Um, and again, this goes back to, you know, when I try to tell Christians about this a decade ago, most of them would be like, <sighs> you know. It's not it, very gospel centered of you, John. Um but, you know, an environmental working group has a great database where they go through products, skincare products, um, house cleaning products, and they just honestly tell you what's in these products and what these chemicals are associated with. And it's, it's wild, you know, so y- you couple the loss of good strong father figures the decline in dietary quality and environment and food supply flooded with xeno and phytoestrogens. And is it no wonder that most of the men around you wear skinny jeans? (laughs) Yeah. Well, and that's what I want to ask you, right? Is a lot of guys are recognizing this. Like it's especially the manosphere. Um, A lot of doctors, I think now for men are saying like, Hey, go get your testosterone levels checked. One of the things that's alarmed me, I don't know if it's alarmed you, um, is when we look at the problem, okay, you have low T, what doctors are doing is then prescribing testosterone yeah. 
Yeah, TRT, testosterone replacement therapy. Yeah, which is uh, even I've heard from some people even in the medical communities. Um, th- first of all, like somebody with low T giving them testosterone, if the real issue is estrogen, like for, I don't understand the full science, but it doesn't work. Like that's actually not solving the problem. So I wonder if you would weigh in with that. Do you think guys like I'm sure there's guys listening to this show. They got low T went and got checked. What, what should they do? Man, it's, you know, there, there's no simple answer. You know, the, the first thing I'd say is you should clean up your home and diet. Yeah. Um, you know, all, all of the cleaning products in our house, 95% of what we clean our home with is vinegar and baking soda and water. Like, why are you exposing yourself and your family to all of these unnecessary endocrine disrupting chemicals? You know, it's just um, so you need to begin to clean up your environment because you are what you eat and you are what you're exposed to. So if your house is full of synthetic candles and scents and you're using Febreze um, and you're using, you know, tied laundry soap to clean your laundry and stuff. And then you wonder why your hormones are all jacked up. You know, and, and you're eating um, confinement soy fed beef and you wonder why your hormones are all jacked up. Well, there's a reason your hormones are all jacked up because you're bombarding your body every day with hormone disruptors. Um, and, and so there's lots of good books on this subject, um, obviously, from like the Weston A. Price Foundation area, um, from the paleo effects type people. There's not many Christians really writing or speaking about this issue, but there's a lot of people writing and speaking about this issue. And you got to eat the fish and spit out the bones. Yeah. Um, you know, so clean up your, you know, get rid of processed foods. It's amazing. Um, I just did an article for the Wise Traditions Journal on snacks. And man, most healthy snack foods in America are full of soy, um, are full of rice, which is full of arsenic and other heavy metals. Um, you know, and this is what most men are grabbing on the go. They're, they're grabbing these, you know, soy, estrogen-laden snacks and then they wonder why you know their bodies are just in rebellion yeah no i think that's a great point so really starting with a lot of this stuff it's you know quite frankly i think it's easier just we'll take a shot well that's a lot easier than like change my lifestyle (laughs) particularly when i I, you know it is frustrating i i'll admit this like as a man it's like you it's kind of like you know everything in the world is like working against you and so if i want to have like natural things it's going to be really hard but um, that's something we talk about too on the show is like, well, that's life as a a man in the world today. So you just have to take ownership for it um, and do the best that you can with it o- on that. Um, John, I, I want to close, but before we do, um, I want to ask just uh, a question. You have a friend uh, who is pretty well known in your state <laughs> and um, kind of one of the most base guys in, in uh, Congress and uh, so, of course, we're talking about uh, Thomas Massey. Um, but you, you've told me about this story a little bit. I was reading about it recently. Um, 
it's kind of a good picture of localism, how he came to be involved with politics. So I wonder if you would just tell us that story. Yeah, I actually just got off the phone with Massey before I hopped on here. Oh, so, awesome. Yeah, so, you know, because most people don't know Massey's backstory. Um, and, you know, if you are in Kentucky, it's a re-election year for him. Um, or if you have family in Kentucky, his primary, I think, is in May. Um, okay. So give the guys some love, get people to turn out and vote for him in the primary and support his re-election. But, you know, Massey and his wife, Rhonda, went to MIT. Um, so he's super genius level guy, him and his wife. Interesting. And um, after MIT, they founded a technology company, got a whole bunch of investment capital, uh, ended up living in Boston area for a number of years. And they really didn't like the direction the company was going because of the venture capital involvement and whatnot. So they sold out their stake in this company moved back to rural Appalachia, Kentucky, um, bought back a thousand acres of their ancestral family land, and he built a timber-framed off-grid house all by himself. Based. Dude's amazing. Like, like yes, yeah, so, you know, if based is uh, like a scale of one to ten, Thomas is 100. <laughs> yeah, I, I, will, I will never achieve the level of baseness that he has achieved in terms of, you know, an MIT graduate who built yeah. his own timber framed castle with trees he took off of his own land. Um, so they're building their house. They're settling back in. Um, you know, I think he might be in Grayson County. So over, you know, in Appalachia, northern Appalachia in Kentucky. There's a group of people in the county who wanted the county to adopt zoning and planning. Um, you know, and so zoning and planning, it's like the movie Arachnophobia. Anytime anybody mentions it, it's kill it with fire. Yeah. Because um, it's such a terrible, terrible thing for a, for a county um, to see that, you know, authority over private property. So... These people want to impose zoning and planning on the county Massey lives in. And so Massey wrote an op-ed, you know, letter to the editor um, for his local paper back when people actually read local papers. And um, he showed up for some of the public meetings where this was discussed. And he became the voice in the face of the opposition to this county adopting zoning and planning. And he successfully killed hmm. the effort to get zoning and planning adopted in this county. Um, and so that that got him a fair bit of county level recognition. And not long after the judge executor office opened up in his county and, and judge executor is another one of those offices where most people are like, I don't even know what they do. Um, yeah, you know, it's. And so a judge executor wields a tremendous amount of power at the county level. And so he ran for judge executor and he won. Uh, and so he served as judge executor for a number of years. And, you know, just this rural and, and, and um, you, you probably I think I sent you his um, talk at Rogue Food. Oh, so good stories from what he was county executor, which is so good. Executor. Hilarious. 
Oh, that's, he did so much good. You know, um, he did so much good for the people of that county while he filled that office. You know, he, he is a reminder of, you know, when, when the righteous rule, the people rejoice. Mm. Um, you know, the people in his county were blessed by him being in that office and yeah. filling it. They, they were protected from tyranny. The resources they gave over to the magistrate were well stewarded. Um, so he served as county executor and then the national congressional seat, which basically runs from the edge of Louisville up to um, the Ohio River at Cincinnati and then over across all of northern Kentucky. Um, that guy decided to retire. And I can't remember exactly how Massey decided to run. If some people kind of encouraged him, you know, as part of the Ron Paul wave, that big Tea Party wave of, I think it was 2010 or maybe 2012. Um, and that, that's how he be, became a, you know, national congressman through fa- faithfulness and, lo- you know, h- yeah. how biblical is this? It's just like he wanted to be faithful and little. He was faithful and little. And now he is trying to be faithful with much. Yeah. And it's a, it's a cool story too, because for people who don't know, I'd encourage them to check it out. Thomas is, well, when all the spending bills were happening, he was like the one dude who was like, yeah, I'm not voting for that. That's nonsense. And, um, you know, I, I, I don't remember if it was Nancy Pelosi, but she was like, he's one of the most dangerous wacko fundamentalist people in America. And I was like, I like this guy. So yeah. And, uh, you know, just has a lot of really good thoughts. And, and I think what we need more of is guys who are courageous, principled, and unafraid of the vitriol of Washington, D.C. Like, you could just tell uh, that Thomas just does not care about that. Yeah, he, 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 lo- he, he drinks liberal tears. For <laughs> he really does. Um, yeah, and, and a, good, a good ending point. But I think a good, it's a good lesson for people, like you said. Like, think local. Start where you are. Start ordering your own existence. If you see chaos, then order the chaos. Bring order to it. And if you can do that well, then God usually blesses with greater levels of responsibility. John, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. We'll definitely include links for some of your works, which I encourage our listeners to check out. Thanks again, brother. Man, thank you so much for having me. So to everybody, just the Lord bless and keep you. Um, And, you know, it's... Oh, you know, the, the days seem dark, um, but, you know, we are the seed buried in the earth that if we die, you know, we will bear much fruit. So mm. give yourself to the work, gentlemen. Hey, man, I love it. Thanks, John. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. Of course, be sure to check out the show notes for appropriate links, stuff that we talked about in the episode. Again, special thanks to John Moody as well for joining us on the show. I believe John will also be at the County Before Country 
conference in Ohio, Batavia with Michael Foster this year. Our very own Brian Sauvey, Pastor Brian, will be there, I think, doing some uh, music. So if you are interested, be sure to check that out as well. Speaking of joint ventures, I do want to also plug the King's Hall podcast. If you haven't yet checked this out, that is a podcast that I do with Pastor Brian Sauvey and Dan Burkholder. Man, we've had a lot of great content. We're talking about how to rebuild Christendom in an age in which it is standing somewhat in ruins. And so be sure to check that out. You can do so at kingshall.org. We just recorded an episode this week, which will air on Friday, whenever you're listening to this. Um, that I'm really excited for that. That's with Chalk Knox. We're talking about post-mill theology, some theonomy. And then, of course, also if you join the Patreon for the King's Hall podcast, you also get after-hours content. So we do a 20 to 30-minute show talking about a lot of in-depth issues and kind of get to know a little bit more about us as men and the work that we're doing. Uh, definitely, again, check that out. That's kingshall.org. And finally, I do want to give a shout out again to Reformation Heritage Books. Really appreciate everything that they are producing. Uh, Joel Beakey, Pastor Joel Beakey, a lot of great material. My wife just read a book on watchfulness from them, which was really excellent. And it's really a wonderful thing, you know, along with Canon Press and some stuff like that. It's really awesome that you can go somewhere and just find reliable resources and not really have to, uh, you know, worry that you're getting a lot of garbage, but they've just put out a lot of great resources. And we thank them especially for sponsoring this show. Until next time, man, stay frosty, fight the good fight, act like men.